Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Welcome to services this morning. We've already been blessed with the opportunity to sing praises to our God. And um, I'm going to ask my wife to bring my notes up here for me. <laughs> One of those mornings. So um, join me, if you would, in the book of Ruth. Thanks, sweetie. <laughs> um, the third chapter of Ruth. Uh, for some of you who have not been on this journey with us through the book, I just encourage you to take some time in, in your leisure to read through the book. Um, the theme of Ruth is redemption. It is uh, We've seen those that God redeems, the, the type of people that God redeems. And we've seen last week we saw the process of redemption, the, the um, way in which that process works with God bringing a people to Himself that are repentant that have faith, um, expecting God to do things. And, uh, and now we're going to come to, really we're getting ready to address the actual um, conclusion of the redemption, which is kind of an exciting moment, a, a climactic moment in the study of the book of Ruth. But before we get to that climax, we have to address a problem. And uh, many of us will be able to identify with this part of the book of Ruth because it addresses a dilemma or a delay in the process of redemption. Um, like Ruth, it seems like things are going well at this time. Um, everything seems to be kind of falling into place and everything seems to be going right. Uh, Ruth is excited and she is ex expecting good things to happen. And then there is an obstacle. There's a hindrance. There's something that happens along the the journey that seems to kind of be like a hurdle that's thrown in front of you. And I don't know if you've been there before. I imagine if you're alive right now that you've been in that boat before where everything seems to be moving forward well, and it seems like everything's going to work out. And then in the, in the end, or in, at this point, you find yourself in a, a state of perhaps concern, or maybe you find yourself in a state where you don't know what the next step is. This is what happens here with, with Ruth in this, in this story or in this narrative. And so let me read, uh, let's read, you can follow along with me in your Bibles in Ruth chapter 3. The Bible says in verse number 11, and now my daughter, this is Boaz speaking to Ruth, Boaz is the redeemer, Ruth is the unbeliever, and Boaz is getting ready to redeem her or to set her free from the bondage to her unsaved condition. And, and here's what he says to her. He says, and now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you have asked, and for all my many townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. And then, and here is where the dilemma begins, and actually, as we read through this, you'll, you'll see that uh, Boaz actually kind of stumbles over his words a little bit. There's actually five Hebrew words in the next few verses that are unnecessary words. It's almost as if, as you're reading through this, you can see that he, 
he he comes upon something that is perhaps a struggle for him. He doesn't maybe know how to fully explain it, but he but he has confidence it's going to work out. And so here's here's how it goes. He says, "Yet there is a yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay down at his feet until the morning, but, he, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing. Let, let me just stop and make a comment about verse 14. Um, Boaz's main concern is that Ruth not be considered to be a, a prostitute that she not be considered to have ill intentions in this moment. He, he doesn't want people to know that she's been there, uh, not necessarily to protect his own reputation, but more so to protect her reputation. It, it's very similar to the story of Mary and Joseph, when Mary is conceived uh, in her womb by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God, and Joseph is going to put her away privately because he doesn't want shame to come to her name. This is a uh, this is really, guys, a, a description of a charactered man uh, who is not as much concerned about his reputation as he is about that of, of his wife or that of a woman in general. Uh, Boaz saw himself as the provider and protector of this woman. He, he saw himself as being responsible for her. And, and he took great responsibility in the same way that Christ takes responsibility for all of his children. He takes responsibility for our sins. He takes responsibility for our life. Jesus takes responsibility for everything about us. And so Boaz does the same thing. And so in this moment, instead of becoming selfish, he, he thinks of her and he protects her from having a reputation of being inappropriate. And let me say this to you. It would not have been difficult for Boaz to point his finger at Ruth and say inappropriate. She was a Moabite. Moabites were known for being prostitutes. They were known for prostituting themselves out. The women were known for prostituting themselves out to the men, and the men were known for this type of a lifestyle. So this was a charactered man, a godly man, who was a representation of Christ, who was going to be more concerned about the reputation of this woman than he was about his own well-being. So he says, let it not be known that this woman has come to the threshing floor. In verse 15 he says, and he said, bring the garments that you are wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. This is a significant amount of barley. Six measures of barley would have weighed approximately 50 to 80 pounds. So you're talking about a lot of weight being placed on this woman, which describes, it really describes the strength of, of Ruth as well. And she was a very strong woman, and it's likely that he put that weight on her head, which is where the, the women actually carried a lot of these heavier things. They carried them on their head. So he puts this weight, he puts this, this amount, the six measures of barley on her, and, and she goes into the city, or she goes back to be with, with Naomi. Before we go on, just note that the number six is the number of incompleteness, right? The number seven is complete. The number seven is perfection. The number, se- number six in the Scriptures represents the number of man. It represents incomplete. 
In six days, God created everything, but, but creation wasn't complete until the seventh day when God rested. So we, I want you to remember that because we're going to kind of unfold that in the process of why did he give her six um, measures of barley? What was that a picture of? Because I think he's saying something through this six measures of barley and not giving her seven. So we'll get into that here in a, in a bit. Verse 16, and when, he, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Now, I want to address this as well. In the Hebrew, this is not the best translation of what's being said there. What is actually said, and in many other versions actually translated, I believe, more correctly, is she says, who are you, Ruth? She asked her the question, who is she? The implication is, going back to chapters number one and chapter number two, is that she's asking her the question, are you now identified, are you now identifying with Boaz? Are you now in him? Is he, is he who you identify with? So when she asked her the question, who are you? She's asking her the question, are you, are, for lack of a better term, are you in the family? Did you get, did, you, did, the, did, the, did the plan work out and you are now where you're supposed to be, right? You know, it's like, it's like a couple friends trying to work out a relationship with a, with a, for one of, their, one of their girlfriends and get them to go out with a guy and they go out on a blind date and they ask the question, did it work out? That's what she's asking her. She's like, have you, did he marry you? Did he take you into the family? Did he become your, um, become your husband? Do you now belong to him? Are you now, when she asked the question, and I, and I love the way that he, I love the way that she, that he phrases, or, or that Naomi phrases this question in the Hebrew, because it really, in, in these day and age, in, in this day and age in history, when a woman was married to a man, that was her identity. She said, who are you? Right? It's like before you're married, Gwen, my wife was Gwen Carmen Becker, and the day after she was married, she was Gwen Carmen Prettyman. The question is now, who are you identified with? Are you identified with your old life? Are you identified with your old... Um, my family's back there laughing, so I, it's hard to preach when your family's laughing when you say something... So uh, forgive me for making a moment to notice that. This is the second week in the row that they've done that to me. So um, I'm going to move on here. It's okay, guys. <laughs> um, um, uh, <laughs> so who are you identifying with is what she's saying to, to Ruth. Who do you identify with now? And then again, this is a beautiful picture of salvation. When we become a follower of Christ... We're no longer identified by our old life. We're no longer identified by our sin. We're no longer identified by our, by our, 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 our being a slave to sin. We're no longer identified by our old master, Satan. We're no longer identified by, the, by those things, but we're truly identified by Christ. We're identified as being in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 is probably the most familiar. If, anybody, if any man be in Christ... He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In other words, your whole, when you become a Christian, your whole identity changes. She's literally asking Ruth, are you, do you have a new identity? Are you a new person? Are you a new creation? 
And, and now Ruth is going to respond to, to that. And um, the Bible says in verse 16 at the end, Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, this, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must go back, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, her mother-in-law, Naomi, replies, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how this matter will turn out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, there are a few things that we can, can draw out of this, that the last verse, whether or not there was something that Boaz had said to Ruth, or something that Boaz had said to Naomi, or if it was in the actions that Boaz had performed towards Ruth that made her think that it's going to be solved today. Maybe it was just Boaz's character that made Naomi say that, that this is not going to be a long, drawn-out thing, that Boaz is going to deal with this immediately. He's going to take care of it. But whichever way you'd, you'd want to go on that, what's clear is that Na- Naomi has confidence that this is not going to last to tomorrow, that this is going to be dealt with today, and something is going to happen that's going to bring redemption, help, deliverance, salvation to Ruth. So for Ruth, at this point in the story, everything is kind of following, falling into place. Everything is, is kind of coming together. There's, there's an excitement. You can kind of feel her excitement her expectation, her readiness, her hope. Boaz has proved herself to be faithful. Boaz has proved himself to be a provider and a protector. Everything is in place that would make Ruth ready to recommit herself to to Boaz or commit herself to Boaz or recommit herself in marriage. Everything is in place. You can almost picture in your mind like a young girl who has waited a long time for her knight in shiny armor, and now he has shown up. He's there. He's present. There's, a, there's an excitement there. And for Ruth, it goes to an, an, an extended level because of her past, because of her history. I imagine in Ruth's mind, and I think as you study the book, I think that it's not a stretch at all to say this. I I imagine Ruth pictured herself as living a widowed life for the rest of her life, as not having anybody that really cared for her or connected to her or she could belong to or she could be a part of or she could identify with. I imagine that Ruth felt completely hopeless and helpless in the realm of mattering anymore. So it it really it really escalates this whole moment here because now she is mattering again. Now there is a man who is showing her extremely uh, extreme attention, a, a man who is actually all about her and desires her. So you can kind of see this, this, this welling up of excitement in her. Everything seems perfect and everything, everything seems to be blessed. And then all at once, boom, bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is that there is a redeemer that is a closer redeemer than Boaz is. And according to the law, the closer redeemer had first rights to redeem the land and to redeem Ruth. And Boaz knew that. 
Many scholars believe that Boaz had actually already looked into this information prior to, the, prior to coming into this moment, so he was aware that this was going to happen. Other scholars don't believe that to be true, but what we know is that according to the law, the closer relative, when, you, when it's, Scripture uses the idea nearer redeemer, this just means somebody that's a closer relative. In other words, like a brother. Um, the Leveret Law was that if a, if a wife's husband died under the Leveret Law, the, the next brother would take her to be his wife. And then they would have an offspring, and the offspring would then be considered that other son's child. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Ruth, Obed, who was born to Boaz and Naomi, Boaz and Ruth, is called Naomi's son. Because, of the, because now that child is going to carry on the name of Elimelech, who is Naomi's husband. So this, the, there's these laws that are taking place in this context to, for things to go according to what the law is and what the expectation is. So now Ruth is in this dilemma. She's fallen in love with Boaz. Boaz has fallen in love with her, but knows this, that he cannot step in front of the law. R remember this. The whole purpose of this is to get to David, isn't it? The last part of this book is the genealogies of David. And then the whole purpose of getting to David is that we might get to whom? We might get to Christ. So if at any point along the way, someone decides to do something that's illegal, imagine that David's, David's kingship becomes in question because we don't follow the proper order of the law. I believe in my heart that that's why this text deals with these laws so clearly, is so that when we do get to David, nobody questions David's kingship. When we get to Christ, nobody questions Christ's messiahship. But all of these little details have to be worked out first before we can get to Christ and believe that he is the rightful Messiah on the throne. So they're in this dilemma. She's convinced that he is the one. She has learned to trust him. She's ready to belong to him. But then this obstacle is thrown out in front of them. As I was preparing this, I thought of Jacob you guys know the story of Jacob in Genesis 29. He works seven years for, this, for, for Laban, and uh, he works for seven years so that he can marry his daughter Rachel. At the end of that seven years, he wakes up the morning after his wedding, and Rachel is not there with him, but Leah is, or Leah. And the Bible says about Leah is that she was challenged in the area of beauty. But Rachel was very beautiful. So you can imagine the dilemma that Jacob felt in that moment where he's got the wrong wife, but Laban gave him that because the law stated that the, the oldest had to be married first. So you have this similar picture going on. You have this similar dilemma. I, I liked how Jacob responded to Laban in the, in the text back in Genesis 29. He says, what, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? I, I, I think that's an appropriate response. But, but this is how, I think we can all kind of connect to this, because this is how life goes. This is how life goes. God's plan seems to be in place. Everything is progressing nicely and smoothly, and then, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a stumbling block, comes a dilemma, comes a delay, an obstacle 
that seems to hinder God's plan. And we've all been there before. We've been walking through life and everything just seems to be going well, right? You know, we're, we're, we're not walking through life, but now we're skipping through life, you know? Anybody ever skip out there? We don't skip anymore. I think when you get past a certain age, skipping is impossible to do. But it's like skipping through life, right? You're just like enjoying it. Things are going well, and then bam, COVID, right? And it's like, oh my goodness, now what do we do? Now what happens? This, this, this dilemma, this delay has happened to us, and, and we all become, I think by nature, we become fearful that God's plan is not going to work itself out. This is, what, this is what we're seeing here in this text. Is you have this plan that's, that's, man, it's just beautiful how it's flowing together. It's like people call this, this book this beautiful love story, but yet you get into like the middle of it, and it's like, oh my goodness, there's an obstacle. There's somebody else here that could step in and could basically uproot and destroy everything, right? This is a real problem. What if the other Redeemer... You know, Ruth is in love with Boaz. Boaz is in love with Ruth. But what if this other redeemer decides, hey, this is my property. She's supposed to be my bride. I'm going to take her. It's problematic, isn't it? This is how life goes for us. This is how life goes. God's plan is in place. Everything is going well. And then something happens bad. One thing that we have to remember is this. While God's plan is perfect, it is, it is accomplished through fallen humanity. While God's plan is perfect, it's accomplished through us. It's accomplished through Boaz. It's accomplished through Moabite Ruth. It's accomplished through Naomi. It's accomplished through humans. So while God's plan is perfect and always comes to its fulfillment, the details of his plan are often less perfect. The details of God's plan are often messy because he's dealing with working out a perfect plan through imperfect people. So in this story, we have Boaz, who is a type of Christ, right? We would all agree that Boaz is a type of Christ, right? Is there another Redeemer besides Christ? There's not, is there? So what we have is we have a human mess representing Christ. Because something has happened along the way that man has done that has been a delay or a dilemma to a perfect plan. It doesn't mean that it stops the perfect plan. It just simply is a, it is a obstacle to that perfect plan coming to fruition. You guys have been there before. We live there. We live there daily in our life. God working out a perfect plan through imperfect people. And that's us. God is working through us his perfect plan. So like Boaz being a type of Christ, with the fact that there's another redeemer, what it becomes is it becomes an imperfect type. Think about it this way. Marriage is a type of Christ. The church is a type of Christ. The family is a type of Christ, right? It's a type of our relationship with Christ. All three of those are a type of our relationship with Christ. But what would, would we all agree that they're all imperfect types? Because not one of us perfectly represents Christ as husbands, as wives. Not one of us perfectly does it. So what God does is he carries out a perfect plan through imperfect people. And because of that, we have dilemmas. We have delays. 
We have things that crop up and, and that, that, that are standing in front of us. They, we have obstacles because God is working out a perfect plan through imperfect people. I want to give you four things this morning to meditate on in regards to that. What does God want us to learn about dilemmas or delays in His plan? What does God want us to learn about dilemmas and delays in His plan? Again, because He's dealing with with fallen people. There's going to be dilemmas. There's going to be delays. You think about Abraham. When Abraham was told that he should leave his, his land and leave his family and go to a land that the Lord was going to give him, Abraham took with him Lot and his father-in-law and his family, didn't he? And his Lot, his name was Terah. His Lot, Terah, his name means delay, and Lot's name means veil. So there are two things that stood between Abraham and the promises of God. One was a veil, and the other was a delay. Abraham took with him his father-in-law, whose name means delay, which delayed, if you, if you study the story of Abraham, it delayed him getting to the promised land. And then when he finally gets there, God has to take him and separate him from Lot, who is the veil between him seeing the glories of God. When he separates from Lot, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, when he separates him from Lot, the very next day he says, Abraham, get up and start looking around you east, north, west, and south and see all that I have given you. But you know what he had to remove first? He had to remove the veil. He had to remove that thing that kept him from seeing all that God had for him. Why was there a veil there? Because he was dealing with a fallen Abraham who didn't do what he was supposed to do to begin with and took a veil with him and took a delay with him. And I guarantee you, Abraham wasn't thinking he was taking a delay and a veil with him. He thought he was taking a father-in-law and a, uh, and a was it nephew. Thank you. A nephew with him. It's human things. It's God working out perfection through fallen humanity. This is why life is full of difficulties and struggles, and we pray for things, and then we, we ask God for things, and they don't happen for a long time. And we think, Lord, why haven't they happened? Because there's a delay. Because there's a veil. There's a dilemma there that's keeping them from happening. And this is what we see in the book of Ruth. And I, and I would say this to you. This is probably one of the most encouraging parts of the book of Ruth, isn't it? Because what we see is we see God working with, with things that are not perfect. If, if this story would have no problems in it, I wouldn't be able to put myself in it. I wouldn't be able to see myself in it. I wouldn't be able to identify with it. It wouldn't make any sense to me. But man, when I come across this and I'm like, look, they're imperfect too. And yet God is going to bring David out of the situation. He's going to bring Christ out of the situation. Hey, God can work through imperfect things and imperfect people. And all God's people said, it's great, isn't it? This is where we live. Here's some things I think we, I want, I want to, I think God wants us to get from the text that will help us as we face whatever dilemma, whatever delay, whatever obstacle that has been put in front of us to get from promise to fulfillment, right? Whatever's happening, uh, I want us to learn these four things. Number one, 
The provision of God in a time of dilemma. The provision of God in a time of dilemma. Know these three things. In a time of dilemma or delay, God will never take advantage of us. God will never take advantage of us. In this situation, we notice that, that Boaz never takes advantage of Ruth. As a matter of fact, the way that the terminology is written in the Hebrew in this, in this context is, is meant to say that there was nothing inappropriate that takes place in this relationship. Nothing inappropriate that takes place in this relationship. There's an extraordinary amount of protection of, of Ruth in this scenario. God is not going to take advantage of a situation that we're going through, whether it be a difficulty or a trial or a delay. God is not trying to take advantage of us. He's not a manipulator. He's not a deceiver. He is telling the truth. He is working out his plan, and he is doing it perfectly. Not only that, in his, in, in, do we learn that in regards to his provision, but he protects uh, Ruth, protects her reputation. And then the last thing in regards to his provision is he provides for her six measures of barley. Again, I mentioned to, to you earlier, this would have provided the needs of, of Ruth and Naomi for, a, for an extended period of time. He was making sure, as a matter of fact, he says in the text, but he did not want her to go away empty-handed. Matter of fact, in each situation in the book of Ruth, when, when, um, when Ruth was with Boaz, there's an extended amount of grace, an extended amount of provision, an extended amount of help to her, to the point where, where he's like telling, he's telling his, his servants who are working in the fields to just drop some extra stuff behind so that Ruth can get it. This is not just a story about Ruth and Boaz. It's a story about Christ and his people. There's an extreme provision. We think sometimes that God, is, God, is, um, God has forsaken us, right? David often prays in the Psalms, Lord, where are you? He almost implies that there's this distance between him and God, but there's never a distance between us and God. The distance that's happening between us and God is often right up here. It's not a reality, it's a deception of the devil that God is, is far from you. God is never far from us. He's always right there with us. He is a perfect heavenly father who never forsakes his children. So as he knows that you're getting ready to go through a delay or a dilemma, he's going to make sure that you have what it takes to get through the delay or the dilemma. He's going to make sure that you're provided. He could have said to Ruth, well, we don't really know who's going to redeem you, so I'm going to leave you to yourself until we decide who's going to redeem you, and then we'll, we'll make sure you're well taken care of. It might be his responsibility. It might be my responsibility, but let's wait until we figure out whose responsibility it is. That's not Boaz's attitude, and listen to me, it's not God's attitude either. Whatever you're going through, Whatever God is working out in your life, whatever sanctification He is bringing, whatever separation He is bringing into your life, it might be painful and it might be difficult and it might be challenging, but listen to me. God has a plan for it and God is going to provide for you and protect you as He completes His plan. I think of Jonah in the belly of the fish. You know why Jonah lasted three days in the belly of a fish? I would call that a delay or a, a, a dilemma, right? Do you know why he lasted three days in the belly of the fish? Because God kept him alive. 
God provided for him in the middle of the belly of that fish. That is a miracle. People today say, well, the Bible isn't true because it talks about a guy being swallowed by a fish and living in there for three days. It is true. Because God provides for His people in the midst of the worst situations and circumstances, God has not left us alone. He wants us to know that His provision is there. He's not trying to take advantage of us. He's not going to forsake our reputation or or, um, throw mud on us. And He's going to provide for our needs in every one of these situations. So this is the provision of God in your situation, in your circumstance. Sometimes we have, I was, I was praying this morning as I was driving here, and I just, I just asked the Lord, Lord, help me to focus on all the things that you have done good for us, and not just all the things that are not going right. And I appreciate Jared praying and thanking the Lord for the rain, right? And then asking him to hold it off until we're done with the, with the service. The provision of God in dilemmas and delays. Number two is the panic of God in dilemmas and delays. Is God panicked when a dilemma happens? It's interesting because as we go through this story here and we see in chapter number 4, Boaz is going to address this other redeemer. You never hear the other redeemer's name in the entire book of Ruth. What's interesting is the book of Ruth is full of people's names. And the reason the book of Ruth is full of people's names is because by the time you get to David and Jesus, you need to have a genealogy that matches. So literally, the book of Ruth is like replete. This person is this relative of this person. Man, it's like everywhere, right? But you come to this last guy. You come to this other redeemer. His name is never mentioned. And then he's called, in chapter 4, he's called, Boaz calls him friend, which is how it's translated. It literally means in the Hebrew, Mr. So-and-so. His name, he's referred to as Mr. So-and-so. This same Hebrew word is found two other times, one in 1 Samuel and and the second time in 2 Samuel. And in both places, it's meant to hide, to conceal what the name really is. Literally, what God is saying is, is, here is this delay, this dilemma that means nothing. It's just something we have to get through. It's an obstacle that we have to work out. It's something that has happened that has to be figured out and worked out, but it doesn't mean anything in the whole scheme of God's plan. There was 0% chance, listen, there was 0% chance that this other Redeemer was going to step in front of Boaz. Zero. Why? Because that wasn't God's plan. God's plan always overrides everything else. And when there's an obstacle in front of us, here's what God says about him, Mr. So-and-so here. I'm not even going to say his name because he doesn't matter. We just have to get past that obstacle or that dilemma. It's not a big deal. He isn't even referred to in this passage of Scripture because of that. This term would later be used to call somebody a John Doe, somebody that you don't know what their name is. They, somebody that passes away and nobody knows. They're called John Doe. Nobody knows who they are. This text is meant to tell us that nobody knows who Mr. So-and-so is, and it doesn't matter. Because why? Because Boaz was going to be the Redeemer. 
in spite of the system that was there, Boaz was God's plan to redeem Ruth. There was just an obstacle that needed to be removed for it to happen. Listen, God has plans for your life. God has things that are out there. Maybe they're a year away. Maybe they're two years away. And there are some obstacles in the way. Don't get lost in the obstacles. Don't get confused or frustrated or concerned by the obstacles. Know this, that God has never panicked one time in his entire existence. He's never panicked once. In 2 Kings 3, verse 17 and 18, the Bible says, For thus says the Lord, You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. In other words, God's going to fill up this stream bed with water without wind or rain, without any type of a natural source. And then he says this, And this is a light thing in the sight of of our Lord. It's a small thing. Mr. So-and-so was a small thing. It might not have been a small thing to Ruth. It might not have been a small thing to Boaz, but listen, it was a small thing to God. It was a small thing to God. And God is getting us all to a place. God is taking us all to a place. And we know the ultimate place is heaven and eternity with God. And that's what we, we anticipate and we look forward to. But you know what? There are going to be some things along the way, obstacles, uh, delays. There are going to be some things along the way that if we get lost in those things, we're going to lose sight of eternity. So we see the fact that God doesn't panic or the panic of God in a dilemma or a delay. Number three, the promises of God in a dilemma or a, de or a delay. The promises of God in a dilemma or a delay. Number one, He will never leave us destitute. The six measures of barley would describe or would provide enough food for them to last for a long period of time. The promise in the delay, or the promise, not the provision, the promise in the delay. So the six, the six measures would provide enough for a long period of time. But listen to me, the six measures on purpose were meant to not be sufficient. In other words, what he is saying by giving her six measures is we're going to come back together again. This I'm not giving you enough to last forever. I'm giving you a limited amount so that we can come back together. He's making a statement that he's going to return. Something very similar to what Jesus Christ did in John 14 when he says to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus Christ resurrects from the grave, the Bible says that they who came to the grave find his garments folded, folded on the, on the tomb where he was laid. This was a picture in Hebrew culture of the fact that he was going to return. It was what somebody did when they were sitting at a meal and they got up to leave the meal. They would fold their, they would fold their napkin and they would put it on their plate. And it was a statement to those around them, don't clean it up because I'm coming back for the rest. This is the same thing as the Good Samaritan who takes the man into the city and he pays two denariuses for him, which basically supplies for him 30 days. And he says to the innkeeper, he says, listen, use all and do all that you can to care for him because I'm going to, I'm going to come back again. 
This is the promise that he's making to Ruth. And it's the same promise that Jesus Christ has been making to us for 2,000 years now, that he is coming back. Jesus Christ is coming back for his people. He's coming back to not give us temporary deliverance or a salvation that's just meant for this life. He's coming back to take us home to heaven. We have an eternal hope, a hope that exceeds all of the problems and difficulties of this life. We have to keep our focus on those promises or else we will become discouraged and despondent in the process. The Lord promises us in Hebrews 13, verse 5, that He will never leave us nor forsake us. This is the promise of this narrative. The second promise is that redemption is guaranteed for for Ruth. He says to Ruth, I will do for you all that you have asked of me. In other words, what what he is saying to Ruth is there's zero chance that you will not be redeemed. He is promising her all the Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 13, who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is promising them that. He is, Boaz is promising Ruth that all that you've asked will take place in some way, shape, or form. The details may not be clear to Boaz yet, but he is guaranteeing her that if you come to me and you depend upon me and you lean on me, salvation and deliverance will be the end result. And Jesus Christ promises the same thing. If you're here with us today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He promises you that if you will come to Him, if you will come to Him in repentance and faith, He says you will never be ashamed. He promises to bring deliverance and salvation to you. It may not be today or tomorrow. You may not feel like every load is lifted from your body, but you can be assured of this, that there is an eternal glory that is, to be, to be, that is being guaranteed and is be, to be looked forward to. He guarantees those who are repentant and full of faith that they will be redeemed. And there is zero chance that that's not, there's zero chance that that will not happen to somebody who comes to Christ. The last promise that he makes is that he'll count your dilemma or your delay as urgent. He says at the very end of this um, chapter, Naomi actually says to Ruth that this will be taken, this will be taken care of by the end of the day. In other words, God is not God is not God does not take our problems lightly. The things that you go through are not meant to last forever. An old woman came up to a preacher once at the end of the sermon and she said, "Pastor, you know what my favorite verse in the Bible is?" And you guys have all heard this before because I know I've said it about 10 other times. My favorite verse in the Bible is it came to pass. And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" She said, "I mean it didn't come to stay." It's so, it's so true. The difficulties and the trials that we're facing in life, they didn't come to stay. They didn't come to dominate us and to destroy us. They came to mold us and to make us into the people that, that God wants us to be. This is a process of our sanctification. It does matter how we look at it. It does matter how we take it, how we receive it. But it is, it is, it is God's plan of working out His will, His perfect will, in the life of those who are imperfect. These are the promises of God in the time of dilemma. And then lastly this morning, what is the prescription of God in the time of dilemma or delay? What does He prescribe to us, right? You guys ever go to the store and get a prescription? Well, this prescription for sickness or, you know, we got all this sickness going around. I'm sure you've all probably gotten a prescription in the last year or so. We know what a prescription is. It's something that is prescribed to us to help us with whatever we're dealing with. 
What is God's prescription for you in this time, whatever time you're in, of dilemma or delay? Three things. He says, first of all, to Ruth, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Where does that term, where does that term find itself prominent in another place in the Bible? Where do we see that often? Think about the Gospels. When Jesus was born, when he goes to Mary and he tells her this miraculous uh, uh, prophecy about her having, you know what he tells her? Don't be afraid. It's interesting. When God in his word speaks about things that seem impossible, or when God in his word talks about things that seem really, really difficult, do you know what he often starts with? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. Don't be afraid, Joseph. Don't be afraid to the disciples when he resurrects from the grave or when he's getting crucified. Don't be afraid. He said, let not your heart be troubled. He tells them about his crucifixion coming. Do not be afraid. We find this all throughout Scripture. In moments of doubt, in moments of miraculous um, in moments of miracles, when God promises the impossible, in storms, in times of difficulty before His crucifixion, after His resurrection, in all of these places, God says, do not be afraid. In the face of your dilemma this morning, in the face of your delay, listen to me, do not be afraid. Our God is in control. The second thing that he says to her in regards to his prescription to her, first of all, do not be afraid. Then he tells her, there is another Redeemer that is closer than I that could step in and mess things up. And then he says this to her, lay down and rest for the rest of the night. Now, you notice that he doesn't say to, say to her, Ruth, there's a chance that this isn't going to work out. Worry for the rest of the night. Don't go back to sleep, because if you go back to sleep, things might not work out. What does he tell her to do? He tells her, Ruth, lay down and rest. Man, what a challenge. In, in, these, in these moments when it seems like everything is going right, and then you have this obstacle put in front of you, and then this, ob this obnoxious guy says, go to sleep, right? It's like, okay, okay, Boaz, whatever. I mean, that's kind of how you would feel, right? But what he is saying to her is he is expressing to her that he has it all under control. I mean, isn't that what Jesus says to us in those moments of, dis of, of fear and worry when you can't sleep at night? Proverbs says that, uh, um, Proverbs says that a righteous man will have good sleep. Bo Boaz says to her, Ruth, lay down. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. Don't be concerned. Rest. Sleep. Trust. Depend. Lean on me. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So when we face dilemmas and we face delays in our Christian life, don't be afraid, rest. The last admonishment that is given to Ruth is in the last verse. It says, wait. 
says, wait. Wait, my daughter. Wait on God. Wait on God. Wait on this unfolding plan. Wait on his will being accomplished. Wait on his purposes. Wait on his strengths. Wait on his comfort. Wait on his on on his care. Wait on the Lord. Whatever you're needing today, wait on God. I've seen so many situations and circumstances in life where people, if they would have just waited one more day, it would have worked out, but they, they gave up and they quit in that moment of greatest despair. And God was saying to them, just wait. It's all taken care of. It's all worked out. Just wait on me. Isaiah 40 and verse 31, But those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is a promise of God. Psalm 27, 13 and 14. The psalmist says, I believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The psalmist says, I believe that I was going to see goodness in the midst of trial and tribulation. I believe that goodness was going to come out of this. I believe that there was a light at the end of the tunnel, that there was a treasure at the end of the rainbow. I believe that to be true. And he says this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait on the Lord. Let me ask you something this morning in closing. Has life thrown you some curveballs? You had some obstacles? You felt like God's plan was in something? You felt like everything was lined up? The process was laid out? You felt like, man, this is just going really well. And then the hammer dropped and it seemed like nothing was going well at that point. It seemed like you even began to question whether God was in what he started. Whether God was even doing anything. It's in these times and it's in these moments that we must remember that God is sovereign. That God is working out his plan, which is perfect, through imperfect people. We know that God will win because his word says that he will win and his plan will be fully laid out. He is not worried. He will not leave you alone. He will be urgent in the process and He will keep His promises. And His call to you is simple. Be fearless, be restful, and be patient. His will will be accomplished. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You today for... Thank You for Your grace, for Your goodness, for Your redemptive promises. And even, Lord God, when this world throws everything that it can at you, when it does everything in its power to defeat your gospel, to undermine your purposes and your plans, we as your children and your followers can be confident that, that the world could throw everything at you and it would in no means even hinder what you are accomplishing. God, help us to rest in that Help us to be confident in that, to be bold into that, and to live that out in the face of all of this conflict, that the world around us might know there's something unique about those followers of Jesus. And then may you gather your people together through that witness. I pray your blessing upon this, your message this morning. May it penetrate our hearts and glorify your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.